0: Right. Good morning, church. Good to see everybody. Uh, if you're wondering why I was kind of in a bubble over there, I asked to play piano. They said no. Um, but uh, Jill and I just got back. Thanks. Uh, just got back from uh, visiting her family in California, and so taking necessary precautions uh, and distancing was asked by the state. Uh, it's good to be back and good to good be with all of you and seeing a lot of new faces. Would love to say uh, hello to you from my little zoo area over there after the uh, service. If, you, if you'd love to come by and say hello, um, it's good to be back. And um, you know, I know while I was away our community went through a pretty hard, pretty hard week. The loss of a dear friend and brother. M- many, uh, we know, I, I personally uh, knew Greg Bell as a brother and a friend, and um, the other six uh, that we mourn in the, in the tragic plane crash last Friday, and um, been asked by his wife Cindy to lead the service this uh, Saturday at 3 o'clock at Cook Inlet Academy. Um, if you knew Greg and, and know and love his family, I would invite you to come and celebrate his life. I thought of the line there. My race is complete. Grace, Greg's earthly life, his earthly race is complete. Now we believe that he knew Jesus, knows Jesus, and is dancing with him. And we can't wait to catch up with you, Greg. If you have your Bibles, we're in Matthew chapter 22, as we've been walking through this uh, book together, and today's message is called Riddle Me This. Riddle Me This. Uh, who is the um, smartest person uh, that you know in your life? I see some people pointing at me. Man, that is just sucking up. Um, I don't just mean book smart. We're talking, who's the wisest person you know? When we think of um, the the difficult challenges in life, the big questions, uh, life's fastballs, what do we, or curveballs, I guess if you're... um, who For me in my life, uh, one of those guys that comes to my mind is my mentor, uh, Larry Smithwick. He was our interim pastor here at our church uh, before I uh, started. He, he had, been, had been a pastor, just retired this last year, had been a pastor for 50 years. Nothing I could throw at him that I was dealing with that he hadn't already seen and walked through. And I took the baton from Larry on January 1st, 2016. It was a Monday. That Wednesday... I was asked to perform a suicide funeral three days in as a pastor. I had never done a funeral at all, let alone um, suicide. And so what do you do? I had no idea what to do. I had one idea. Larry, Uh, I came running to him. What do I do? I need wisdom. I need direction. And he sat me down. And this is something, a road he had walked dozens of times already. And we looked at scripture passages that he had used before. He just let me look at some of his old messages. We talked about what's appropriate to say, what's not appropriate to say in those moments. And by the grace of God, using Larry as a wise uh, guide through that, I was able to love the family to my best of my abilities through the darkest season of their life. Now, in that moment, I was listening to Larry. I was following Larry, doing what Larry said to do. Why? Because I trusted Larry and I believed that he knew what he was doing. He was wise and he was trustworthy. Jesus was the smartest man who ever lived. More than these guys. Uh, have, you ever, have you ever thought about that? Like we, we think of flannel graph Jesus. We know that Jesus with the lambs on his shoulders and the children following him, that he was gentle and kind. And, and those, But do you ever think about the fact that Jesus was a genius? Like if he's going up against Ken Jan- Jennings in Jeopardy, he doesn't stand a chance, right? You would never want to play Trivial Pursuit with Jesus. He would get you every single time. Um, we, we know that Jesus knows everything, and not just Bible stuff, right? Jesus knows everything. He knows about the molecules. He knows about Jesus could do the Rubik's Cube behind his back like Maya Zubek. It's amazing. Uh, She is she's not Jesus. That's a different. uh, We why? Because he's God. God knows about the stuff because he made the stuff, right? And so Jesus, Jesus is smart enough, wise enough to guide us through uh, life's difficult questions. And we're gonna be talking about some of those this morning. Uh, We're gonna be talking about marriage and, and money. We're gonna be talking about eternity and the future. We're going to be talking about God's will and purpose for our lives. And to follow Jesus as one of his disciples, we better be sure if you're saying, as we come to the altar, here is my life, Lord, we better be sure that he knows what he's talking about. We better be sure that he's trustworthy to follow, to obey, to trust with our entire lives, right? Now, Larry didn't actually, doesn't actually know everything. Just keep that between you and I. No human does, right? That's why there's only one person to whom we should completely trust with our lives— to follow, to listen, and to obey. Now in Matthew's story about Jesus, we've seen that not everyone trusts him or believes that he's the smartest man who's ever lived. We've seen that the Pharisees uh, reject his claim as this God-king. In this section, in Matthew 21 through 25, we've been seeing this clash of kingdoms, the world's kingdoms and God's kingdom, and, and this t- these tensions between God, and Jesus, and Israel's leaders are rapidly rising. Now... We know that Jesus just got done. We saw the story where he's flipping tables in the temple and he says, you are all corrupt. He says, you've rejected John's message and my message of repentance. You've rejected my claims to be the Messiah and God will judge you accordingly. Not exactly a hallmark greeting card. And they all hate him for it and they're looking for ways to bring him down. Now, if we don't like what someone's saying about us, what can we do? Well, if you're in a courtroom... You can try to discredit the witness, right? You can show inconsistencies in their story or maybe some character flaws so that the jury won't buy their story. If we can discredit them, we can discredit their claims. And this is exactly what the Pharisees try to do here. In Matthew 22, verse 15, it says, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle Jesus in his words. They try to stump Jesus, the smartest man whoever lived. Let's play chess with Einstein, right? We think that's a good idea. They're not exactly the brightest flames in the menorah. You see what I said? It's a Jewish joke. Okay, uh, great. Uh, we, we see Israel's leaders, their best and brightest, are asking Jesus three questions to try to trap him, discredit who he is and the claims that he's making, and they're trying to kill Jesus through him being unable to answer their questions. But what we're going to see this morning, what they don't see from God's perspective, is Jesus is going to be killed. But it's not because he can't answer the questions. It's actually because he can answer the questions. And it's through Jesus' death and resurrection that he answers all of our lives' questions. Now, Jesus is not only going to completely mic drop these guys, but his answers are going to show that he's a new kind of leader in Israel that's smarter and wiser than anybody else they've ever seen. In fact, today we're going to see that Jesus is calling us to a new kind of allegiance to him as a king, a new kind of life to live, a new kind of love with which we live, and a new kind of king to follow. So let's look at this. Matthew 22. First of a new kind of allegiance if you're filling in your blanks there in your bulletin. Uh, The first one, verse 16, says they sent their disciples to him along, says the Pharisees, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you don't care about anyone's opinions, for you are not swayed by appearance. Can you hear the flattery dripping from their lips? Jesus, we know you're not swayed by men. You're true, you're trustworthy, blah, 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 blah blah proverbs says this about flattery it says a man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet this is a trap like you guys did this thing when you were younger right like where you'd get behind somebody and they didn't suspect it, you got down on all fours and the other person would come in front of them and they'd like distract them and they'd push them behind the person who was ne- you guys didn't do that yeah <laughs> me neither that would be mean that would be cruel um So they're they're trying to go, oh, Jesus, you're so great. You're so wonderful. Get him, right? Like that's the trap they're trying to set through him through this flattery. In verse 17, tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, this first stumper may not seem like a hard question for us, right? Like, should you pay taxes or not? That's sort of an obvious one for us, by and large, and in our culture today, but we got to understand the context to which Jesus is talking. The issue of paying taxes to the Roman Empire in that day was perhaps the hottest topic in the Middle East. See, imagine waking up one morning and discovering that the world's greatest superpower, uh, Canada, (laughs) has marched into our country, they've stolen our land and conquered us as a people, and then demand that we pay them taxes for having conquered us. Right? That's the kind of thing we won't stand for, right? It's, that will cause resol- revolution. That will cause rioting. And that's exactly what happened to the Jews toward Rome. There was a famous revolutionary when Jesus was just a boy. Uh, his name was Judas. This is not his disciple Judas. Uh, this is another one. Um, and, and he led this a revolt over this very issue of paying taxes to Caesar. And Rome crushed that revolution without mercy. And they left scattered along the Gilo- Galilean countryside um, dead Jews hanging from crosses. This was a warning to the people that paying taxes and an allegiance to the Roman Empire was not optional. Now, notice that he is asked this question by two groups of people. The first one is the Pharisees, and then the other group is the Herodians. Now, these could not have been politically and religiously more opposite if you tried. Nothing unifies like a common enemy here. The Pharisees showed an unwavering allegiance to national Israel, and at least outwardly to the God of Israel. So for them, for this empire, emperor, to be demanding a tribute, that would have been blasphemy to them. But then you have the Herodians, and as their name would suggest, this was a party of Herod. And remember, he was the puppet king of the Roman Empire over um, this region. And along with him, the Herodians willingly bowed the knee to Caesar. So this would be like if a group of Republicans and a group of Democrats came to you and asked a hot-button issue question to you and said, go ahead and answer it. You're ticking one group off or the other. And the Herodians say, if you say no, you shouldn't pay taxes, then we're going to stick you on a cross like all those other rebel zealots. This would have been high treason to the Caesar. But the Jewish people, they would have said, the Pharisees, if they say, if you say yes then our people are going to say, then you're no Messiah. You're supposed to be the one delivering us from these tax-demanding Romans, right? Isn't that your job? Get rid of Caesar and put God on the throne again? Isn't that why we're here? When you came strolling through with that donkey and we were waving palm branches in the air like we just don't care and we were singing, Hosanna in the highest? This is the one who saves? If you say pay taxes to Caesar, this is treason to God. But these fools are playing checkers. Jesus is playing chess. Look at his answer here, verse 18. Jesus, aware of their malice, he knows what's in their heart and why they're asking. He said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me, and this is his answer, show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Remember, that was a full day's wage we talked about it a couple weeks ago. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is on this coin, image and words. And they said, Caesar's, Caesar's. Now, this is what genius, the genius of Jesus here. What he's doing, this uh the denarius had an image of the current Caesar. And in these days, they didn't just see him as, like, the ruler of the country. He was seen as a god, as divine. And so in this day, the the current image, and you can't really make it up, but the word Tiberius, he was the current Caesar, and he was the son of Augustus, who had died. And when an emperor would die, they were seen as transcendent into the divine, as, as a god. So the coin would have literally read this. It would have said, Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine augustus the son of god do, do you see it and then on the back side there was a another portion a, a female and, and it was it said pontifex, pontifex maximus which was their word for high priest because remember political religious these were seen as one he wasn't just the the ruler he was the the high priest and so you here you have the image of the son of god the high priest who brings pe- peace to the people you can see why the Jews would have been so offended by this. That, th- that was not going to be done by a Roman man. But Jesus wants to shift the narrative here. And he says, what you're asking about in the heart of the issue here is not paying taxes. This is about image bearing. Look at where he takes this. He says, Jesus, Jesus says ingeniously, Therefore, render or give to Caesar what is Caesar's, the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Here's what Jesus is saying. Whose image is stamped on that coin? It's Caesar's image. So give to Caesar what has his image on it. But what image is stamped on you? That's the image of God himself. We go back to Genesis. He tells us this. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. So what's he saying? That coin is created in the image of Caesar. You're created in the image of God. In fact, Jesus is the true image as the true son of the true God, the true high priest who will bring us true peace. Amen? Jesus says, pay your taxes, obey the civil government, but you give yourself to God alone. And some of us us need to be reminded of this these days. Uh, some of us need to be reminded our heart might be need to be reminded that we need to give to caesar what's his and we've seen this very clearly in, in, in a in a um an issue that is not controversial at all covid right how do you struggle giving to the government what they're asking for and remember jesus is after our hearts not just an outward action I know over the past couple months I've had to check my heart. Some of us need to be reminded that we're to give ourselves to God. Derek Webb said it this way: My first allegiance is not to a country, a flag, a country, or country. Maybe I got it mixed up, or a man. My first allegiance is to a king and his kingdom. I am not primarily a citizen of the United States. I am a primarily a citizen of heaven, and I belong to Him. Israel's real enemy, listen to me, it was not Rome. The, 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 the ultimate enemy was the power of evil. It's sin and death. And that force, that, that, that foe will not be defeated by force. It is to be defeated by love. The revolution of peace that Jesus was bringing was not taking one country and then killing the people of all the other countries, like Rome. But to himself, by himself, by dying and rising again, he was going to create a new community of people. Of people from all All the countries of the world, from Israel, from the Roman Empire, from Guatemala, from the United States, who give themselves in allegiance to him, each citizen of his kingdom, giving to their local Caesar what he's asking for. But we don't trust that Caesar, do we? We trust God and never forget where our true citizenship lies and who our true king is. I would summarize it like this, a new kind of allegiance that we're called to is not to one ethnic people in other words, not one country, not one people group, not one but but to God himself and his citizen, kingdom citizens to all nations That's what Jesus is getting at here in this first answer. Now the second one we see is a new kind of life. So he says you've got a new allegiance and then you've got a new kind of life. Now in verse 23 it says the same day Sadducees came to, came to him. So this is a wrestling match. The Pharisees are down on the mat so they tap out. They tag the Sadducees. Now it's their turn to jump in. And they come. He says who are the Sadducees? These are people who say there is no resurrection and they ask him a question. Now the Sadducees are very different than the Pharisees. They're this kind of rational group of leaders who didn't believe in the supernatural. They said there were no angels, there was no resurrection of the dead, and these people only listened to and believed the first five books of the Bible, Genesis uh, through Deuteronomy. And so these guys come to him, and what they would do often is they'd tell these silly stories of, what, uh, of resurrection ideas. They wanted to point out that this idea of an afterlife was stupid. It was unbelievable. So they would tell a story like the following one. Verse 24, they were saying, teacher, Moses said, again, first five books, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third, down to the seventh. And after them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, your resurrection, Jesus. Therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. So what are they getting at here? There's one bride, seven brothers. And I was saying, if I was like brother number four or five, I'm kind of noticing a pattern, and I'm going, "No, thank you." <laughs> right? Like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna marry you, cursed woman. Um, that's not nice. Each. <laughs> Each dies uh, with no kids. So they say, Who's, whose wife will she be in, in heaven? Now, the reason this was such a big stinking deal to them was based on God's promise to bless Israel's seed. And, and part of this blessing was to preserve their family line, their descendants, and, and that family unit would keep this certain part of the, the promised land so this was this was huge for them they wanted to prevent the family line from dying out so if your if your brother died you would marry his widow to continue the family line but the sadducees are saying here if there is such a thing as heaven jesus in this crazy scenario, if none of these brothers gave her kids, then whose wife would she be? If there's no family line that they've continued. But Jesus doesn't play their game. Verse 29 said, but Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Mm, Jesus is awesome. Verse 30, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given a marriage, but are like angels in heaven. He says, your question is way off. There actually is no marriage in heaven and you're going to be like angels, which is a double burn because he says, you don't believe in the afterlife or angels. Well, bam, well, bam. Moving on. The new kind of life that God raises us to in Jesus is without death. You see, our current bodies die and decay, right? And, and so we're saved through childbearing. What that, what that meant was we continue to have kids and the human race perpetuates. If we didn't have children, this generation would die out, right? Children are how we continue to live. But in our new worldwide family, we're raised to new resurrection life, there will be no death or decay. So we won't need to continue to make babies. We're, we're going to live forever. But then Jesus here, he says, while we're at it, let me drop some knowledge on you about this, this resurrection thing. Verse 31, he says, and as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? Now, it's interesting. Remember, they only believe, they only read those first five books of the Bible. Jesus could have used a different Old Testament reference to talk about the resurrection. and maybe a clearer one, but he goes, let's, let's talk about the, the Bible that you read in exodus chapter 3 remember when god is talking to moses in the burning bush this is what god said to moses i am the god of abraham and the god of isaac and the god of jacob he's quoting exodus 3 verse 6. now this is hundreds of years after these first patriarchs had died but he says notice that he does not say i was the god of abraham isaac and jacob i am the god of abraham isaac and jacob and then jesus concludes by saying he is not the god of the dead he's the god of the living do you see what he's saying here he's saying i'm not i I, it wasn't that i was their god and then i ceased to be their god they're still living and i'm still their god and i will always be their god here's the beautiful thing about god's promise to us the reason we know he raises the dead is because he cannot fail his promise to be our god forever He is the God of the living, he's not the God of the dead, amen? And so what we see here is Jesus saying there is a resurrection, and and he is the God of the living, and the resurrection life that is to come, we we would summarize it this way, a new kind of life is one that is eternal, talking about quality of life, not just quantity, continued on not by having kids, but by the spirit of the living God who's indwelling us today, tomorrow, and forever. Last question they have. Is in starting in verse 34, is a new kind of love, a new kind of love. Verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. So you know things are getting desperate when the Republicans and the Democrats join forces. And they come to him and they send their boy genius. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Now, in this what's a lawyer? A lawyer, an expert in the law, the Mosaic Law. And so he's gonna ask him this question about the law. The teacher, which is the great commandment in the law. This is a common debate at the time. They would argue about in the commandments, which one was the greatest. Now, remember, it's not just the Ten Commandments. They were ultimately given 613, so there are a lot to choose from. Some people would have said, well, it's the very first one. Have no other gods before me. That's the most important thing, right? It's, it's who God is. Some people would say it's keeping the Sabbath holy, honoring the day that he set apart. Some people, and my personal favorite was, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. I mean, I just, every morning, am convicted of that sin, just repentance over and over again um so imagine that I'm arguing with my siblings uh, w- w- about which one of our parents rules are the most important because as you can see we were just uh rule keeping Jesus loving kids all all the time um and, and Justin the oldest says I think the most important rule is that thou shalt chore Janelle says no 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 it's thou shalt not pull hair She liked that one because she had more to grab. Jesus, Jeremy, whoa, Jeremy says it's the goat milk one. I think that's the most important, the most important one to keep. Now, we ask mom and dad, and which one is the most important rule, mom and dad? And and dad, he sits me down on his knee, and he says, son, and the sitcom music kind of comes over us, and we have this moment together. He says, you're going about it all wrong, right? Well, what we want you to do is we want you to love us, and if you love us, then you'll trust and obey us, right? That's the kind of relationship we have. And if you trust and obey us, then the rest of the rules will happen, right? You will chore because you love us, and you'll love each other. You will not pull hair because you trust and obey what we're telling you to do. And this is essentially what Jesus says, verse 37. He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's Deuteronomy 6, part of the law. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus. So here's what Jesus is saying. He's not just pointing to a rule, but he's pointing to the very character of God. See, the law wasn't just a set of random rules that God kind of made up. It expresses who God is. He is love. And so love is the governing principle of the rest of the law. He says, if you love me, there's like the parent with the child on their knee, he says, if you love me, if you, you will trust and obey me. And if you trust and obey me, then man, you'll do what I say. And you'll love your siblings, right? Because if you love me and trust me and obey me, you're not going to murder each other. You're not going to covet each other's things. The rest of the law is fulfilled if, if you love. You see, God is after your heart. Listen, he wants the whole thing. He doesn't just want good behavior. He wants all of your affection for him. He wants all of your trust. He wants all of your obedience he wants all of your allegiance i meet with three guys every wednesday morning we share our hearts and our lives with each other and it's this incredible time but one of the pitfalls that you could fall into in a group like that is to simply make it about an accountability thing where you just talk about what you did or didn't do this last week did you look at porn or not did you, did you lie or did you not now hear me hear me god does want us to stop the bad things that's clear but he wants us to stop the bad things because they are a barrier to a relationship with him right that's that's the whole idea of of salvation it's not what we're saved from it's what we're saved to. it's not just that we're saved from the bad things we're rescued and freed the barriers knocked down so that we can have a relationship with the living god amen we might say, okay, great, Justin, but that's even harder, right? It's hard enough just to not tell lies or to to not lust, but to love God with all of me all the time, to love other people as much as I love myself, well, exactly, it's impossible, and that's why Jesus came. He says in verse 40, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, remember this language? He used this before. When we see law and prophets, Jesus is referring to not just the law, but the whole Old Testament, and this should kind of trigger our brains back to when he used this phrase in the Sermon on the Mount, back in Matthew chapter 5. Remember what Jesus said. Do not think, verse 17, that I've come to abolish the law or prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What in the world does that mean? Well, Remember, he, he, he says, I'm not here to say that the Old Testament is now irrelevant. Don't worry about all that stuff that was said in the past. No, he said, I'm actually here so that what was said in the Old Testament can happen. The Old Testament told us to love. I'm here to make sure that you actually can. In a different gospel, he said it this way to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, and I have loved you as I have loved you. Now, you might want to say, wait a second, why is that a new commandment? We just read it in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy, love the Lord your God. Leviticus, love your neighbor. How is that a new commandment? Well, Jesus is saying, he's not saying it's a new commandment in that the Old Testament didn't say to love, He says it's new in two different ways. It's two different ways. The only way it's going to be possible to love from the heart, not just outwardly, but actually love from the heart, is Jesus, with Jesus. Now, there's two things here. Um, First of all, he, he models it for us. He says, as I have loved you, read the Gospels. If you want to know how to love somebody, look no further than the example of Jesus Christ in the four Gospels. But beyond just a model for us, he actually gives us the power to love in the resurrection life. We just sang it, yet not I, but through Christ. John Piper would say it this way. First, the command is new because it's a command to live out the love of Jesus, the pattern that he gave us. Secondly, the command is new because it's a command to live on the love of Jesus. We live out the love of Jesus and we live on the love of Jesus. Or to say it another way, the words, as I have loved you, contain a pattern for our love for each other and they contain a power for our love for each other. Jesus shows us how to do it, and he enables us to be able to do it. Let's summarize it another way. A new kind of love is the living Jesus in us, giving us the pattern and power to actually, really, truly be able to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to actually, truly be able to love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves, and we love ourselves. Fourth one, and now Jesus says, it's my turn to ask the question. The new kind of king, verse 41, now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. He says, you've been asking me some questions. Now it's time for me to ask you. I think it was uh, N.T. Wright who said the answers that the opponents couldn't question are followed by the question they couldn't answer. If this is a boxing match, Jesus is going in for the KO. This is going to be game, set, and match. And Jesus says, he starts it by asking this. What do you think about the Christ? This is the, the Hebrew term was Messiah. Christ. It's it's the same person. He says, what do you think about this Messiah? Jesus is going to show them what it's really about. It's not ultimately about taxes. It's not ultimately about marriage. It's ultimately about the identity of the coming rescuer. This is the one they're pinning all their hopes on. So all that matters is ultimately is is who is this person, right? This is the reason they hate him. The reason they're trying to kill him is because they don't believe his claim to be the Messiah. In verse 42, he, he asks this question, whose son is he? This Messiah, this Christ, whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David, the son of David. Now, this would have been a standard answer from a Jewish person at that time. And God had promised a son, right, a descendant from the line of David who who would restore David's throne. And they envisioned these prophecies as as a son who would defeat their national enemies, Rome, Assyria, Greece, the people around them, that he would rule and reign over Israel and over the whole world. Now, this was a true answer, right? The son of David—that was part of the prophecy—but it was insufficient. It was inadequate. Jesus needs them to see that this Messiah was not just the son of David. He was something much, much greater. Verse forty-three. He, he turns to see, in Psalm one hundred and ten. Now, Psalm one hundred and ten is the most quoted Old Testament passage in all the New Testament probably would not have been our first guess, this is actually the most referenced Old Testament passage. And he knows that the Pharisees, remember that's who he's talking to, they know this passage, like the back of their hand. And this is probably the the most common um, Old Testament reference and prophecy to the coming Messiah. So he references this passage, and he says in verse 43, he said to them, how is it then that David in the Spirit, out of the influence of the Holy Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, the Lord... David said to my Lord, this son of his, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? So we asked this question: if this person, this, this Messiah to come, is David's son, then why does David call him Lord? It's not what you call. Your, my dad never called me Lord, right? which is a bummer. He needs them to see how (laughs) much, how he's much more than a man. See, the son of David, if he was just a human, at best, at best, he would have the kind of power that could win military victories over Israel's human enemies. But that's not ultimate hope, right? But if he's God, if it's God becoming a man, not just the son of David, but the Lord of David, the son of God himself, he can bring peace to nations, not war to nations. And when he puts the enemies under his feet, verse 44, he's not talking about other countries, but the ultimate enemies of the entire human race, which is sin and the death that it brings. And only God can do that. What's Jesus saying? The Messiah is God, and if I'm claiming to be the Messiah, I am God, not just the son of David. I'm the Lord of David. I'm the Lord of all. Verse 46, and no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Game, set, and match. Jen Wilkin uh, used an illustration that I found helpful. we are talking about the U.S. Department of Treasury, um, which now we we more and more of us know that that was started by one Alexander Hamilton. Here. It has, they had In the treasury, they have what you call proof sets. Now, this proof set is a mint condition of the coin. In other words, this is how the coin is supposed to look. This is the, the point of reference for the coin. Now, the proof sets are in silver, these invaluable metals that are, are worth a lot more than the coins we, we used to have rattling around in our pockets. Apparently, we have a nationwide shortage on those. Jesus is the living proof set of God. Colossians 1 says it this way, he is the image of the invisible God. Do you want to know what God looks like? We were all created in the image of God, but only Jesus showed us what God looked like in mint form, the perfect reflection of the image of God because he was God. But then this is what you and I, brothers and sisters, are welcomed into. Two chapters later in Colossians, he says, we put on this new self, this new resurrected life. And what's that look like? It's being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Who created us? Jesus did. What are we becoming more and more like? Jesus himself, the image of God, the son of the divine the high priest, imprinted on our hearts. Now, we can quickly look at ourselves and both physically and spiritually go, we are far from mint condition. Can I get a witness from the congregation? We're dinged up, right? We look more like this thing. We do not look like mint condition proof sets. We're a mess. But the Christian life is the process of becoming more and more like Jesus being conformed into his image we're being polished we're being refined and he's going to finish what he started it's his promise as we become more and more like the mint condition that we were called to back in the garden of eden so let me ask you this morning what what dinged up dent in, in in your heart is the lord polishing and refining and smoothing out right now Where do we not look like Jesus that he's calling us to look more and more like Jesus? That's his work. Not I, but Christ through me. I would sum it up this way. Jesus is a new kind of king. He's not just another man. He's God himself. Not just the son of David. He's the son of God. He's the Lord of David. The only one worthy of this new kind of allegiance. That says my allegiance to you transcends allegiance to anything else. Any other country, any other king, any other person, any other desire. It's you. The only one able to give this new kind of life. This life that never ceases, that's not perpetuated by children, but by Jesus who will never die, who lives inside of us. And the only one from whom we can find this new kind of love, a love that trusts and obeys God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength, and a love that loves the people that you're sitting next to right now more than you love yourself. Let's bow the knee to King Jesus. Father, we thank you that you've sent this man Not just a son of David, but you came yourself, the Lord of David, the Lord of all. And you defeated sin and death, not by killing other people, but by laying down your own life. And Father, you've now called us to live this new life that you've given us, Christ in us, this new pattern and power for love that knows and trusts you, and because of that, we can give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Fathers, there's someone in there struggling with that hard attitude today, that they would see that you've called us to that, that we pay our taxes, that we obey, unless it contradicts with your word. We've also said that our first allegiance belongs to you and you alone, so we ask that we would become the kind of people in the life that we live and the way that we, would, we love would reflect our true allegiance to our true king, the Lord of all. Father, help us as we see our coins that are so dinged up. We have such a long way to go until we look like Jesus. But it's not based on our ability to do things better. It's based on the sure promises. We come and behold this wondrous mystery that you've invited us into this process of through dying with Jesus and then rising to a new life that through your spirit working in our heart, we become to look like him, love like him, live like him, and call more people to come into that same beautiful relationship with not a dead God, not just one who was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, one who is today the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Justin and Lisa and Jesse and Ian and Bradley and always will be. It's in your living, loving name that we bow the knee, no allegiance to anyone else, and we pray. Amen.